EPA can either enforce administratively by issuing administrative orders. Theoretically, it can go to court if it thinks it needs the power of the court to generate compliance in a particular circumstance. And it also has, or the federal government, it's not just EPA, you have to get both the FBI and Department of Justice involved. Uh, It also has, RICRA has significant criminal sanctions in it. So if the government thinks there's a particularly egregious case, it has the ability to, to put somebody in jail or impose even larger fines under its criminal enforcement powers. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're continuing our series in environmental law where we cover cradle-to-grave treatment of chemicals and our laws on environmental biology. Back on October 21, 1976, President Gerald Ford signed the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act into law, highlighting that this law provides sound state and local programs to deal with ever-increasing amounts of municipal solid wastes generated in this country. In this episode, we're going to spotlight the RICRA, or Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, and we're going to discuss its regulations, the goals, its importance, and its impact, and how far we've come. And to speak more on this topic, our guest today is Professor of Law Craig Johnson from the Lewis and Clark Law School in Oregon. Before Professor Johnson joined the faculty in the fall of 1991, he practiced in Boston, Massachusetts, and then Portland, Oregon. As Assistant Regional Counsel with the United States Environmental Protection Agency in Boston, Professor Johnston worked on major enforcement matters under both the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act, known as CERCLA, and RICRA. In Portland, he founded the environmental section of the Perkins Coie Portland office and represented clients in compliance and litigation matters. Welcome to the show, Craig. Thank you. Well, I'm happy to be here. Well, Craig, let's start talking about how you got involved with environmental law and your work with the EPA in Boston. Surprisingly, I was living in Boston in, in 1981 and and read in the newspaper some stories about groundwater contamination in Rhode Island. And people were drinking, you know, chemical-laden groundwater from their drinking water wells. And it shocked me. And I decided I wanted to work on problems like that. I had a much less interesting job at the time with McGraw-Hill. And so I decided that uh, as an English major, my ticket to be able to work on matters like that would be through law school. I went to law school with the specific idea of of working on hazardous waste contamination issues. Well, that's uh, very few people that decided to do that. Yeah, I, I consider myself very lucky. It was, it's a, it was a decision that proved uh, quite sound in hindsight. I was, I uh, enjoyed you know every single day of my environmental career, and I've enjoyed uh, teaching about environmental law for the past thirty years. Well, give us a little background about your environmental career, what you did with Ricker and Circla. Sure, uh, I worked in uh, what's called EPA's Region One office in Boston. Uh, Basically, it covered all of New England, and I split my time. Half of my time was spent on one huge Superfund case with a couple of other lawyers. That was called the Cannons case. It involved four different hazardous waste sites, and over the course of four years, we negotiated a settlement in that case. But Superfund cases are very resource-intensive and take a long time. And so I balanced that 
with RICRA enforcement cases for the most part. I also issued a, worked on a couple of RICRA permits, but the vast majority of my time in RICRA was dealing with companies that had run afoul of the regulations and our inspectors would come back with their uh, factual findings uh, and we would take it from there. We would decide, you know, what the violations were, what the appropriate regulatory response was. Uh, We would issue a draft order uh, and the company would have a period of time within which to decide whether to appeal that. But in the vast majority of circumstances, we would generate settlements uh, and the clients would basically, excuse me, the uh, respondents, the recipients of the orders uh, would would uh, agree to the solution that we proposed. Let's talk about what actually constitutes and contamination covered by RICRA. Where are we in the spectrum of chemical usage and how does RICRA cover contamination? Well, RICRA was designed as a, you know, what famously called a cradle to the grave regulatory system to basically try to prevent Uh, Superfund sites from being created in the future. So EPA uh, decided which secondary materials were worthy of being deemed to be hazardous waste and, uh, in other words, to be covered under a very extensive and protective regulatory program. Uh, And then it decided also uh, what standards should apply to those who generate those materials or to those who treat store or dispose of those materials. Uh, And again, the whole idea is once you generate uh, what is a hazardous waste, we're going to make sure that it's handled safely uh, and that it, 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 uh, in the end is, is either treated, stored or disposed of in ways that, that uh, minimize the possibility of any contamination, of any significant contamination, excuse me. No worries. Can you walk our listeners through from start to finish how a RICRA event occurs and then what happens as part of the cleanup? Well, again, the whole idea is to, is to hopefully obviate the need for cleanups. <laughs> it Again, it's designed as a system that will make sure that these wastes are safely handled throughout. Uh, once, you know, f- from the cradle, from the moment in which they become waste until the point where they are, uh, again, treated so they can be recycled or disposed of or incinerated or whatever the case may be. You know, there are landfills out there that handle hazardous waste. The wastes have to be treated before they go into the landfills to a fairly rigorous uh, degree. And the landfills are designed so that they will never leak. But there are, you know, groundwater monitor requirements designed to ensure that, in fact, that leakage hasn't occurred or that if it does occur, that we know about it right away. But, you know, if the system breaks down, uh, there is what's called a corrective action component. And so if there is, you know, extensive soil and or groundwater contamination, basically the RICRA corrective action program kind of mimics the Superfund investigation and cleanup programs uh, where uh, we need to figure out exactly, you know, what are the contaminants that are in the soils and or the groundwater? At what levels are those contaminants present? In what direction are they migrating and how how quickly are they migrating? And, you know, once we feel like we understand uh, the scope of the contamination and what the exposure pathways are, EPA and or the state, the relevant state, will be involved in designing a corrective action program that is, you know, uh, uh, intended to make sure that uh, the impacts of that release are dealt with appropriately. The typical clients that I would deal with is a manufacturing facility that's been on a 
particular site for 50 years. They've had some spills of chemicals over the years, and they go into a sale, and all of a sudden the company that wants to buy them comes in and says, we need to do a phase one, a phase two, which are environmental investigations to find out where these chemicals are. And then we find chemicals, of course, both in the soil and in the groundwater, and we would apply to the California Department of Toxic Substances Control for coordination with them. How does the state differ from the federal government, the EPA, in terms of handling these RICRA events? Uh, Not very much in my experience, although California may be the exception to that rule. The vast majority of states develop programs that are the equivalent of the federal program uh, if they want to be the lead implementers of RICRA within their borders. And when I say equivalent, uh, what I mean are really are two things. First of all, the state program has to be at least as strict as the federal program in order for it to be approvable. But states do have the ability to be more stringent if they so choose. Most states don't take advantage of that opportunity. Most states are content just to mimic the federal requirements. But, you know, certainly, again, California has long been a leader. I'm not, I can't tell you exactly um, in what areas California has gone beyond the federal statute. Uh, Up here in the Northwest, in neither Oregon nor Washington, uh, has either one of those states done anything significant in terms of establishing requirements that are more stringent than the than the federal floors that they need to have a, have an approvable program. Now, California has three main attacks where we've exceeded the federal government. We have the California Air Resources Board, then Regional Air Resources Board. We have the State Water Resources Control Board that's responsible for stormwater. Right. And then uh, the Department of Toxic Substances Control, which is generally the lead agency for soil contamination. So it's a bit of a different program that we have here. How does the federal government go about enforcing these regulations when they don't get compliance? You said they they issue consent orders or consent agreements? No, they were unilateral orders, uh, but they would usually turn into consent agreements because, again, the idea is once this order is 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 it has issued, you have you know thirty days to decide whether or not you want a hearing. <laughs> that period can be extended by by the consent of the agency, but you know in the vast majority of cases, again, probably forty five of the fifty cases that I did, uh, maybe even forty seven of the fifty cases that I did during the, my my time at EPA, uh, in the vast majority of cases. Again, a settlement is reached within the within the specified time period. But uh, in terms of how, in general, RICRA is enforced, there really are three possibilities. EPA can enforce, even in states that have approved programs, what are called authorized states. But it tends not to, for the most part. Uh, it one of the ideas that's expressed very very clearly in the legislative history of our pollution control laws, is that if states assume the mantle of taking the lead, the idea is that they will do most of the enforcing. Uh, So, you know, here here in Oregon, for example, we don't have three different agencies, as you described earlier. Uh, We have our Department of Environmental Quality, and our Department of Environmental Quality implements RICRA, uh, it implements the Clean Water Act, and it implements the Clean Air Act. You know, it does most of the inspections and it takes most of the enforcement actions. But again, EPA has the right 
to enforce. Uh, and basically what it says in general is that we will defer so long as we're convinced that the state has taken uh, timely and appropriate enf- enforcement action. So, you know, if the state isn't doing anything or if the state has done something that EPA thinks is inadequate, in some circumstances, uh, EPA will enforce. But when I say enforce, EPA can either enforce administratively by issuing administrative orders of the type that I described just a moment ago. It, theoretically, it can go to court if it thinks it needs the power of the court to generate compliance in a particular circumstance. And it also has, or the federal government, it's not just EPA, you have to get both the FBI and the Department of Justice involved. Uh, it also has, RICRA has significant criminal sanctions in it. So if the government thinks there's a particularly egregious case, it has the ability to to put somebody in jail or impose, impose even larger fines uh, under its criminal enforcement powers. Well, Craig, at this time, we need to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, these immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology, allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu interactive or download PLI's mobile app. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm joined by Professor of Law Craig Johnston from the Lewis and Clark Law School in Oregon. Craig, we've been talking right before the break about enforcement, and you just began talking about criminal enforcement. I've participated myself in a couple of criminal environmental cases where RICRA has been enforced. Let's talk about what, how serious it has to be for the federal government to get to that point, and then what happens. Well, two things. First of all, interestingly, uh, the government believes, and so far the courts have unanimously agreed, that in the vast majority of circumstances, almost any case that is treated civilly could be treated criminally. In other words, the, the mental state requirements have been interpreted quite loosely by the courts to indicate that all the government needs to show is that you knew you were handling a somewhat dangerous substance. You didn't have to know that you know, that this substance was regulated under RICRA. Uh, and you certainly didn't have to know that what you were doing was a violation of RICRA. And uh, actually, the Ninth Circuit, in which both California and Oregon and Washington are located, has some of the leading case law on these points. And in the RICRA context, there's a case called Hofflin. And in the Clean Water Act context, there's a case called Weizenhoff. So 
Theoretically, EPA could treat the vast majority of violations as criminal violations if if it so chose. However, the government has always maintained, and I'm fairly persuaded, that it reserves the criminal enforcement power for the most egregious violations. Uh, And in the vast majority of circumstances, it thinks it is dealing with people who clearly understood that what they were doing was illegal. Uh, So, so I, I was not a criminal prosecutor myself, but you know, my sense is that. A, they they want to they want to reserve the criminal power for willful violations, again where somebody clearly knew that they were flouting the law, and secondly they tend to reserve it for cases where the consequences were pretty significant, you know where it was a dangerous situation in terms of how the wastes were handled and how toxic they were uh, and and who could have been exposed. You know the experiences that I've had in the criminal aspect are involve enforcement actions where. The federal government has been trying to get the polluter to comply for five to 10 years. And so they finally get so frustrated to the point that they simply institute criminal actions. Well, let's talk about how RICRA has been successful. What has it done in terms of restoring contaminated land and uh, preventing the improper handling of waste? Has it been successful? Uh, Yes, but I would put the emphasis more on the latter than on the former. You know, I, I think the ultimate the most significant role RICRA has played over the years is to prevent contamination from happening. So again, in, in the vast majority of circumstances, most companies comply with RICRA and most companies handle their waste in a fashion that is A, consistent with the regu- regulations and B, environmentally sound. So, you know, the problem pre-RICRA and the RICRA regulations didn't actually come into effect until 1980 uh, but the problem, you know, before those regulations were in place was that uh, it was the 1970s were known as the era of the midnight dumping. And, you know, companies could, you know, starting in the early 1970s when the Clean Air Act was passed first in 1970, and then the Clean Water Act was passed in 1972, uh, the, the laws required that companies extract some very nasty chemicals from their air emission stream and then from their water discharge stream. Uh, and for a period of almost a full decade, you know, the question was, well, what are we going to do with this nasty stuff? And unfortunately, uh, you know, a lot of it was just dumped under, under the cover of night or sometimes not even under the cover of night. And, and you know, the main thrust of RICRA has been to sort of put a stop to that and to make sure that hazardous wastes are handled safely. Now, again, no system is perfect. And and by the way, RICRA does not encompass every scenario that poses a risk of contamination. Uh, you know, EPA has chosen to define what is a hazardous waste in various ways. And there are a lot of, you know, fairly significantly toxic materials that don't qualify as hazardous waste. But again, for the worst materials that are regulated under RICRA, it's the whole system is set up to, again, prevent Superfund-type contamination problems from happening. Now, you know, one, one of the aspects of RICRA, interestingly, is that if you are treating, storing, or disposing of hazardous waste, you have to agree to investigate your facility to see whether or not sometime in the 70s or in the 60s or in the 50s, you may have caused some contamination. So uh, if, if, if you're getting a permit under RICRA, 
or, or if you have a permit under RICRA, there is something called the Corrective Action Program. And, and one aspect of the Corrective Action Program is basically, you know, even if you're handling your waste safely now, how did you handle it back in the 60s and the 70s? And even if your site hasn't shown up on our radar screen of significantly contaminated sites yet, we want you to investigate any areas of your property where there may have been releases before the RICA regulations were in place that are still causing contamination problems. So, you know, you do sometimes get significant cleanups that are generated because of the corrective action program. Uh, somehow, again, some of these problems have never captured anybody's attention from a Superfund perspective because nobody has ever looked very hard. And, you know, one of the nice things about the corrective action program is that it actually requires these so-called, you know, treatment storage and disposal facilities to look, to see whether the, anything they did back in the 50s or 60s or 70s was environmentally problematic. So it's, it's kind of a twin program to sup, the Superfund cleanup program. But the nice thing is, at least with regard to, again, the so-called treatment storage and disposal facilities, it's self-implementing. Most Superfund sites are discovered by happenstance. There's not a comprehensive scenario where, where every landowner has to determine whether or not its, its property is contaminated in any way, shape, or fashion. As you mentioned earlier, oftentimes when properties are being sold, the lender will require that an investigation be done. And you get those phase one and phase two investigations that you referred to. But again, if, if the property isn't in being sold, and if it's not a so-called TSDF under RICRA, treatment storage or disposal facility, there are, there's a lot of contaminated land out there in the United States that nobody has looked very carefully at yet. The, the nice thing about RICRA, by contrast, is, again, that if you have one of these significantly regulated facilities, a treatment storage or disposal facility, you've got to look. And you've got to convince the permit issuer, whether it's EPA or whether it's the state, that you've done an adequate assessment as to whether there are any you know, residual contamination problems that somehow slip through the cracks. Well, and the good thing are that there are some environmental standards and protocols to follow to, to be able to do those investigations. A absolutely. We now have, you know, 40 years of history with hazardous waste cleanup. Right. Uh, uh, and so we've, we, you know, EPA and the states are pretty far along the learning curve. Right. Well, Craig, we're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network, available wherever podcasts are found. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm joined by Craig Johnson, professor of law at Lewis and Clark Law School. We've been talking about contamination, but let's talk about the back end of it, Craig. What happens in these cleanups and how long do they take to be able to get groundwater and soil cleaned up and, and to what level? There's this thing called background levels? Yeah, generally, most cleanups do not achieve background levels. You know, back, background would 
B, to make it as if the contamination never occurred. But in, under both the Superfund program and under the RICRA program, you know, in general, uh, uh, EPA has found that depending upon what the contaminant is, in the, in the vast majority of circumstances, either A, it would be completely impractical to remove every single ounce of the contaminants, and B, that it's not necessary in order to achieve you know, what EPA considers to be protection of human health and the environment. Most of the cleanups are, are and the cleanup decisions are driven by uh, the cancer risk. And so in general, you know, EPA's theory is that its starting assumption is that the remaining contaminants at a site after it's completely cleaned up should not present uh, more, more than a one in a million chance of cancer to any neighbors of that site, even if they are neighbors of that site for a long time. <laughs> and that's a, that's cumulative. That's from all the contaminants and from all the exposure scenarios. You know, you might have a, some groundwater contamination. You might have, in some cases, um, volatile chemicals being released through the air. Uh, in some circumstances, you might have contaminated soils that theoretically could could get carried into a house. And maybe if you have a child who plays on the floor, maybe through hand-to-mouth contact, you can have an exposure there. But but the idea is we're going to think about what are, what are the realistic worst-case assumptions about which exposures could occur and what the exposure pathways might be from a site. And we're going to try to determine in general that, again, even though we can't achieve perfection in these cleanups, that we can achieve a level of cleanup that would make it so that no individual's risk of getting cancer would go up by a factor of more than what EPA calls one times 10 to the minus six, or in layperson's term, again, a one in a million increase in what your chance of cancer would otherwise be. And realistically, how long is it going to take to get there? I mean, some of these cleanups that I've been involved with are 20 and 30 year projects. Some of them are 20 and 30 year projects. A lot of that is on the front end, on the investigation, on the investigation end, because it's, it's complicated. I was involved in a situation here in Portland. I probably shouldn't say any more than that. Back when I was in private practice, uh, where in the end, there were more than a hundred groundwater monitoring wells inserted because the groundwater contamination was snaking through the, the subsurface soils, if you will. So, you know, we would put down one nest of wells and we would find nothing. Then EPA would say, well, why don't you put down three more wells? And lo and behold, we would find something quite counterintuitive. I'm no hydrogeologist, uh, but I can tell you this. It's hard, you know, when, when you think about contamination moving subsurface, what I tell my students is compare it to the air context. Well, if you see smoke come out of a smokestack, it's pretty easy to see how it spreads and where it goes, you know, on, on that day, at least with the wind patterns, you can see the plume. Subsurface, it's nowhere near that easy. You have relatively permeable soils in some contexts. You have clay in some contexts. You have bedrock in some contexts. It's not an easy task to really understand where is the contamination and where is it going. And once you know all that, then you have to figure out how do we respond to it. And, you know, there are if it's primarily soil contamination, that's going to be one scenario. If it's if it's groundwater contamination, that's going to be something else. If it's groundwater contamination, are the contaminants at, at the bottom of the aquifer or are they floating at the top of the aquifer? You know, all of these things are much more complicated than 
than uh, certainly I would have expected when I went to law school. And there's a lot of money at stake, obviously. And so that means that uh, the facility owners or the in the Superfund world, the potentially responsible parties are going to be involved and they should be involved. The public is going to be involved, but public involvement and private company involvement, it all is a drag on the system temporally. What it means is there are going to be negotiations, there are going to be discussions, there's going to be proposals back and forth. Uh, there's going to be reactions to those proposals. Uh, and ultimately, the decision maker, let's assume it's EPA, is going to have to make a, a very, very difficult decision as to, okay, what is the remedial plan here? And then you're going to have to implement it. <laughs> and so, you know, between the investigatory phase, the decision-making phase, and the cleanup phase, it's not surprising that sometimes it takes a decade or sometimes multiple decades, as you alluded to. It's an amazing process. Well, Craig, it looks like we've reached the end of our program, so it's time to invite you to share your final thoughts and your contact information so our listeners can reach out to you. I, I don't think I have any grand final thoughts. Again, my name is Craig Johnston. I teach at Lewis and Clark Law School in Portland, Oregon. If anybody wants to reach me, my email address is craigj, C-R-A-I-G-J, at lclark.edu. Well, Craig, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure having you on the show today. I Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Well, here are a few of my thoughts about today's topic. RCRA is a very complicated statute and one that I've worked on for more than 30 years, as Professor Johnston has. And it does cover a lot of different issues that generally affect our soil and groundwater. It's a complicated statute from the standpoint that it has a significant amount of regulations and, as Professor Johnston noted, a criminal component to each one of these aspects. So if you're a manufacturing facility or you work for a company that deals with manufacturing facilities, this is one area where it's important to comply with those regulations, get consultants on board and get lawyers on board because of the complicated nature of it and because it contaminates just about everything it touches when a hazardous chemical is released into the environment. These are very dangerous things for us as individuals. It causes cancer and birth defects and other reproductive harm, as they say here in California, in Proposition 65, when you're notified about the existence of chemicals. But delve into the statute, help it get cleaned up, and realize that it's a long-term process and a dangerous one at that. And that's it for Craig's rant on this topic. Let me know what you think. Well, if you've liked what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at thelegaltalknetwork.com where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. Remember, when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Consult a lawyer.